So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, man fans. Ollie Mann here with the monthly magazine show for your ears. Here's what's coming up. There's a huge amount of guilt, a huge amount of guilt about the decision that I didn't feel I had an option but to make. One listener's choice and why she made it. Plus... The word willy would turn me off like a flipping strip light in a power cut. That is a no for me. I'm a cop girl all the way. Alex Fox on how to speak the language of love. And Ollie Peart has a knitter natter. That's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters and guten tag to David in Hamburg. Uh, David has written in about my interview last month with Glenn Williams. He says, I've been playing your episode, The Knock on the Door, to a friend who spent the past two years teaching English in Vietnam. Uh, She said she too had considered teaching in China, but had already encountered stories online similar to Glenn's one. So in the end, she opted for a more lenient country. Uh, Yeah, well, fingers crossed, at least our interview with Glenn and everything he went through will contribute to the pile of online warnings people might encounter if they are considering teaching in China. Uh, She said, in her experience, the private schools out there promote teachers to parents as qualified and as native English speakers. But in reality, often looking European is enough. She had to tell parents, for example, that she'd studied in the US, even though she is Russian and has never been there. Uh, interesting. Thank you for that, David. Uh, thanks as well to everybody who has pledged beer money to us over the past month. Uh, you are keeping the lights on. Emily Sweet, Vicky Chester, Kristen Carlson, uh, Keaton Ladd in Christchurch, New Zealand, and Anna Schindler in Germany, who has wired us the oddly specific amount of £8.27. Um, I wonder if that is 10 euros, maybe. Um, anyway, she says, Hi, guys, I was feeling way down today, but then Ollie Peart's Ollie Man song came on, and that made me laugh so much, I thought it was about time to send you some beer money. Uh, cheers, Anna. I suspect that that £8.27 is more, significantly more, than Ollie Peart's musical alter ego, Captain Spronk, will ever make in royalties. Uh, so thank you. Although I'm impressed, mildly, to report that he now has 60 monthly listeners on Spotify. So, I, I mean, I presume that's mostly people looking for Captain Beefheart or maybe Captain and Tennille. Oh, I could do with listening to a bit of uh, Love Will Keep Us Together now. Uh, anyway, uh, on with the podcast. Uh, in today's show, you will learn a catchy new way to record the difference between the vulva and vagina. You will learn what MTC is and you'll learn what a man holding up his knitting on a webcam sounds like. Let's go. Righto, time for the Zeitgeist, brought to you by Manscaped. Your trends tested with Ollie Peart. Uh, hello, Ollie. Have you been uh, doing any bizarre gymnastics this month? I was doing the crow pose. You remember yes. last month? I do. I've thought of nothing else. It's haunted my dreams. The image of you doing the crow pose. What? Why? But I want to know what's next. Uh, well, I'm trying to progress to the handstand, so I've progressed onto the headstand. So I can now do a headstand. Does that mean not against a wall, freestanding, balanced on your head? Yeah. So what you do is you sort of put your fingers together, you intertwine them. Yeah, this is the church, this is the steeple. Put them behind the back of your head. And then you put yeah, your... I've already dislocated my shoulder by this point, but go ahead, yeah. <laughs> and then you put your head down, put your head down on the yeah. floor. As if, as if praying. Yeah, exactly. And then you yeah. sort of start, tiptoe your feet up, so you raise your bum uh-huh. up, and then you sort of give yes. yourself a little jump. And you feel yourself sort of balanced. You keep your legs bent and then you've got to try and straighten your legs. The first time I did it, my legs were really, really bent. But now I can 
straighten my legs and I can do it. So unfair, isn't it, that Joe Wicks has a career out of this and yet for you it's just a hobby. You can't monetize it and yet you're obviously a, an idiot savant. The sense of achievement that I feel when I'm doing a headstand, Ollie, I just can't put it into words. I, I can't even tell if we're joking anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad... I'm glad that you've found something in your life, Ollie. I really am. It's weird. It's nice um, doing a headstand in your lounge. If you never get good, do, do it. Do yeah. it. It's fun. We've had uh, a challenge from Edwin in Australia. You will recall uh, tasking Ollie with knitting something recognisable, as uh, so cashing in, I suppose, on the trend that there does genuinely seem to be across social media for young men in particular taking up knitting. How's it gone? Actually, I, I, I hit lucky quite early on, actually, because when our last episode went out, uh, one of our listeners got in touch and was like, hey, I'll show you how to knit. I'm going to guess her, but that's probably unfair. Yeah, it What's is unfair. It's also incorrect. Oh, good, good, yeah. good. His, I'm, his... I'm keen on exploring male knitting <laughs> as a trend. Good. Go on. His name's Tom. It wasn't Tom Daly, was it? It wasn't Tom Daly. No, it wasn't. Yeah. At Knit Slips on Instagram. And Tom was like, yeah, I'll give you a few pointers. First things first do something simple so he sent me a youtube link to a video for a scarf and it all it involved was one type of stitch called the knit stitch i didn't know there were different types of knitting stitches i know nothing i know absolutely nothing about knitting yeah there are loads and loads of stitches literally hundreds but the, but the main that can one will be done with the same thread though you can get the same yarn, can you? But it's just different combinations of moving your hands with the needles. Yeah. So I've, I since I've been doing this this month, I've only learnt two different types of stitches. I've learnt the knit, okay. the knit stitch. Two more than me. And the purl stitch. Nice. And all it is 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 one of them is sort of on top of the needle, and then the other one's underneath the needle. Where did you get your needles? I got my needles in a local wool shop. Lovely. And it is everything you'd expect. There was a lady behind the counter and then there was another lady sat down at a table in the corner having a cup of tea. And I basically just went in and go, yeah, I know nothing about knitting. I've got to make a scarf. That's basically what I said. And she was like, uh-huh. oh, OK, we'll go for some thick yarn because that'll be much, much easier. Start with some thick needles because it'll be easier. You know, a little bit like uh-huh. kids start on Duplo and then progress to Lego. It's the same principle. Yeah, knitting. good comparison. Yeah, yeah. And I asked her, I said, do you get many blokes like me in it? Do you, do you get many bearded, you know, 30-year-olds coming in and knitting? And she said, do you know what? I do. I get quite a few. And I was quite surprised by this. She was actually saying that in her shop, it's it's not 50-50, but she reckons it's sort of 60-40. Because that genuinely is a big change, isn't it, in the last 10 years? Uh, the latest stats that I've got on that uh, say that it's 70% women, 30% men. But that's from 2019. Still a lot of blokes getting into knitting. It yeah. is quite a lot. And I'd imagine that lockdown and things like that had quite a lot to do with people sort of trying new new things. Ryan Gosling also got into knitting over lockdown. He says he finds it yeah. a good distraction. So you've got Tom Daly, you've got Ryan Gosling. What areas of masculinity remain unchecked by Ryan Gosling and Tom Daly? <laughs> Who do you need? You need Ray Winston and Jeremy Clarkson, I feel. And I got some nice uh, wooden knitting needles. I can show you the knitting needles, actually. Okay, why wood? Like, when I think knitting needles, I think of those grey ones. Are they plastic? Are they metal? I don't even know what they are, but they're not wood. So the the reason I didn't go for the the grey needles that everybody's familiar with is because I stabbed myself with one when I was at my grandma's house when I was a kid. Right. Oh, those were the ones. Those were the ones. So they just brought back traumatic memories. And I also quite like the idea of, you know, nice wooden... They look like drumsticks. Let's be honest, that's what it is, isn't it? Because you're a drummer, right? You're a frustrated drummer. I think all of your neuroses comes to the fact that you're a frustrated drummer. I am a frustrated (laughs) drummer, yes. So what was step one? Step one, Ollie Man, is casting on. And when you cast on, you cast on the number of stitches that you need for uh, for the finished thing. So think the width of your scarf on your needle yeah. is going to be the number of stitches that you need. So I uh-huh. I think I did like, I did quite a lot. I did sort of 20. And so it's a Rupert the Bear type scarf we're going for here. Just, yeah, very bog standard. Not a, not a thin Alan Cumming for a night out at a theatre club type scarf, quite but a thick, thick, chunky. I'm a bear in a wood yeah. scarf. And what you do is you poke the, I'm going to, I'm literally going to explain how no, to. No, you have to, here please do. Yeah, so yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. there's a loop here. There's a loop built into the knitting well, needle. Well, once you've cast it on, right? Oh, so you a, make a, a loop. You make a okay. loop, and then you poke yeah. the knitting needle through the loop, right? Yeah. And then there's a bit of thread at the back. You loop the thread round the top and behind this needle. You pull it yes. down, and then you pull this down like that, where you're basically pulling it down the back of this needle, and then you thread it through, and then you pull it off the end of the needle like that. And when you do it, it looks like you've just made a hideous knot. Have yeah. faith. Have faith at that point. Just keep going. Long? 
How long do you need to keep going before you have anything resembling even a crap scarf? Four episodes of the X Files. Wow. Yeah. So I've so st- for the first three episodes of the X Files, are you just looking at a knot, thinking I'm messing this up? The first, yeah, the first three episodes, which by the way, episode one's really good for the first series, but two and three are like, what the fuck, a cave child? What are you talking about? But is this the reboot or the original series? Original series, catching up. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. After three episodes, you're like, you're looking at it, and it just looks like a cluster of knots under here. Under the under the top of your needle, and you're thinking, "What the hell? This isn't. This is going to amount to nothing." But then, after the fourth episode, it's a bit like, "Oh, I can actually see a bit mm. of a what I think of as knitting a pattern." You know, I suspect the fact that you relaxed in front of an old TV show probably helped. I actually found after doing it for about an hour or so, I really got into it. And you're right; you sort of pick up a bit of a rhythm, and I really enjoyed it. Like, I really, yeah. really enjoyed it. It's so relaxing. And then you just keep doing it. And at every opportunity that I had to knit, genuinely, yeah. I would just do it. So I'd just be sort of sat in, in the morning, in bed, if I had like five minutes, I'd just do a bit of knitting. At yeah. night, I'd do a bit of knitting. Watching the X-Files. What did your fiance make of this? She really likes it because the thing is, I, I was doing it. But I, when when I'm doing it, I don't have my phone. I can't use my phone, so it's not like I'm distracted by that. So at least, at you least, you have to listen to her. Yeah, and, but I am listening, and it's so good for that. It's actually really good for listening. So much so that I've watched two baby seminars, webinars, whilst knitting. You can just sort of like you know they say like doodling's really good when you're in a meeting because it helps you focus on yes, what people yes, are saying. Yes, yes, it's the same idea. Yes. Yes. It is brilliant for that. Occupying your hands, slightly occupying your brain, but not really. Yeah. Freeing up space for something else. But yeah. the difference is, rather than having a shitty post-it note with a crap drawing of a cock and balls on that you're going to throw in the yes. bin in the end, you have a fucking yeah. scarf. It's a similar thing, isn't it, to this craze that there was a few years ago for adult uh, colouring in books. Yeah. I therapeutically kind of understand, like it is fun to colour in a thing. I've been doing it with my five-year-old a bit. It does take your mind off stuff and you've... You created something, but as you say, the thing at the end isn't something you want to put in a frame. Whereas a scarf is a useful thing. Like, at worst, you've created... I'm now trying to think what you could use some discarded knitting for. A pocket square? Well, I'll tell you what. A draft excluder? At worst... A merkin? (laughs) I created at worst. Because one of the things that I didn't think about was how much wool I needed. So the, the video that... Tom sent me was from a, a company called Wool and the Gang, who were like, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, sometimes hipsters are fun, aren't they? Yeah, their thing is that the kits that they sell are on trend, so they'll look ahead to next autumn winter, and then they'll sell a jumper that you can knit, which will fit with that fashion trend. And that's that's where this um, this scarf video was from. But the way that they do it is you buy the kit from them and then they send you all the wool and everything that you need. But because I went to my local wool shop, I didn't quite buy enough wool. So I got to the end right. and I was like, oh, well, this isn't a very good scarf. What the hell am I going to do with this? So, Ollie Matt, the big reveal. Yeah. I created, using my knitting skills, a relatively big and comfortable snood. Very nice. The colour is, I would say, like a diarrhoea yellow. Would that be a fair description? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> if you put it round your if, neck. If, if your diarrhoea is this colour, go to the doctor. I thought it was going to be tiny. That is quite big, but it wasn't long enough to be a scarf. So when I finished it, it wasn't long enough to be a scarf. So I thought, what am I going to do with this? I'm going to turn it into a snood. So How do you tie the ends together, though? Yeah, so I, I, I mess this up a bit. So thread, but I should have done it with the wool. Because you get a better yeah. finish. I'm not going to beat you up for that because, you know, sometimes we give you these challenges and maybe it's an unrealistic time frame to give you a month to do something. But I am disappointed, frankly, when you come back after a month and you've achieved something that I think, yeah, it's three hours work. That looks like you have spent a month learning to knit. And that was the challenge and you've done it and I'm impressed. Well, because I disappoint you on so many other challenges, how about <laughs> I make up for it in this challenge because I have two more yeah. things that I have knitted. don't know if I'm going to be able to contain my fluids at what's coming next. This was to help me learn the pearl stitch. And this uh-huh. is a dog snood. Yeah, that looks like um, a bit you, of a rug Yeah, that but you folded round. Can, can you see the different patterns there? Look, so there's, see, they're yeah. bumpy patterns, different patterns. So that was just so I could... I had a bit of wool left over. Uh, was that harder, the pearl stitch? Yeah, yeah, because I, 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 just getting used to it was, was tricky. But this, this fits my dog Milo. Put it round his head. That's really good, Ollie. And what's the other one? Now, this is where this is where I feel like I've excelled myself. Are you ready? As I'll ever be. A baby beanie. 
Very nice. Look at that. That Very nice. is a hat for a child with a, with a b- bauble. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the bauble's a bit ridiculous, but that's like perfect for a baby. You want them to look ever so slightly ridiculous. <laughs> um, I think I would, in the right circumstances, which is specifically someone collecting for a charity in a hospital, I would buy that <laughs> baby hat for a fiver and consider it a perfectly fair deal. Wouldn't you? I, I would. I mean, the wool costs more than the fiver, but yeah. Can we have some photos for the website, please? Well, we can, actually. And- right, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Go there now to see Ollie's extreme knitting results. Do you think you're going to carry on knitting through the winter? Are we going to see more pit-made items in the wardrobe? Yeah, definitely, in fact. I'm going to do an adult beanie. I really want to be able to make my own jumper. So I'm going to keep making stuff and I want to make a proper scarf as well which is why I was thinking with the snood that I've made mm. I'm probably not going to wear this because I'm going to make stuff better than this so I think we should give it away <laughs> to one lucky listener yeah I mean why it's not? of historic interest isn't it it's a snood that was made as Ollie Pitt's first foray into knitting which is obviously going to go on to become the Jean-Paul Gaultier of wool let me tell you right mm. this is this is 90% wool right 10% acrylic so you're getting some good quality stuff here. That's interesting. So if I go to M&S, actually, that's a bad example because that's a premium high street store, isn't it? If I go to Peacock's and I buy a woolen <laughs> scarf, is it not 90% wool then? If you want 100% wool, you're going to pay for it. That's You've the reality. You've got to get Ollie Pitt to knit it for you. I didn't know that either. Okay, so, um, uh, well, who could we give it to, though? If How uh, about w- w- the first person to set up a new recurring beer money subscription ooh. via our beer money form, right? Yeah, like this. Yeah, we'll like get this. first dibs on the snood. Now, if they don't want it... It will go to the next person who sets yeah. up a recurring beer money subscription using our beer money form and help support the show. How about that? Yeah, I, I like that. And, and I mean, we know, will lose if, money because they'll be supporting us with about four quid and then it'll probably cost us $20 to send it to Canada or wherever the hell they are. But anyway, you know, it's a nice well, the, idea, the, isn't it? This is 20 quid's worth of wool. <laughs> so we, we lose all round. We're losing. But anyway, you're, they're at least giving a commitment to uh, financially support us over the long term. Well, we might exactly. break even over a couple of years. Gets it out of my house. So, from as of now, so as of the 10th of September 2021, the first person to set up a new recurring subscription to our beer money system uh, at modernman.co.uk slash beer will have first dibs on the snood. As made by Ollie Peart. Let's reveal your challenge for next month, shall we, Ollie? I feel like it should be in some kind of knitted envelope. Yeah, I also feel like I can fail it because I've done so well this month. <laughs> it's from Katie in Milwaukee. Now, you may remember, Ollie, she got in touch after you said that your missus was expecting a baby shortly to suggest that you... Well, she came up with a whole load of weird baby-based trends for you to try. Um, And one of the things she suggested was that you host a baby shower. Um, And I said on the show, we don't really do that in the UK, so is that really a trend? And I think she feels that's exactly why you should do it, because it probably will become a trend shortly. She says, I didn't realise baby showers weren't popular in the UK... That is why it would be an entertaining challenge for your UK listeners in particular. Baby showers are ridiculous, and I'd like Ollie to discover why by hosting his own. Okay, I mean, I think I know why. Isn't it because it's just, you know, a load of balloons and cake, and you, you just people just give you loads of presents? It seems such a weirdly kind of North American thing. <laughs> but I think maybe it's n- nice for the mum. Maybe it's like a gift at the end of the pregnancy to be like, I know this has been hard. We're thinking a lot, a lot about things that we don't have so maybe it's good for that you're kind of like oh well maybe some of these presents will just sort of alleviate the anxiety the things that we're worried we don't have so there's you nothing know. you don't have ollie you can knit it now well, yeah i'm just gonna use knitted nappies knitted they'll work staircase. well <laughs> <laughs> uh well anyway I, I look forward to you finding out what are genuinely the latest trends in america in the world of baby showers and then trying to implement them in dorset before we move on though we must thank our sponsors manscaped.com because now the lawnmower 4.0 is available. It's got a travel lock. You can turn the light, which I love the light, but you can turn it on and off now. And it's got 7,000 RPM to chew through your meaty pubes. It is the best way to trim your balls ahead of the new university terms. Freshers week. Keep your balls fresh for freshers week. Um, But there's more because the fourth generation performance package gives you not only the lawnmower 4.0 ball trimmer, but also the weed whacker ear and nose trimmer, the crop preserver ball deodorant, the crop reviver toner, and Mm. two free gifts, a very serviceable pair of boxer briefs, which I'm wearing now, who wouldn't want to sound this smooth, 
and a delightful leather travel bag. You can get 20% off and free shipping with the code MAN at manscaped.com. Yes, now that is the international website, so if you're listening in the UK or Australia and it defaults to North America, just choose the country that you're in from the top. But the code will work, 20% off, plus free shipping, when you use the code MAN at manscaped.com. This year, graduate with a degree in clean balls from Manscaped. In just a moment, you will hear from Man Fan Pippa. It is a story you will not hear anywhere else. But before that, it's time for our record of the month. It is the surprise new drop from Biffy Clyro, an epic six-minute track called Unknown Male Zero One. Here's a little taste, just for you man fans. Step to the unknown. I'll catch you on the I'll catch you on the way down Hold tight, I won't let go We're on our way together into the unknown Now, you may recall our episode The Unlucky Ones uh, in which our guests, Joe and Steve, shared their experiences with me of multiple miscarriage. Uh, the episode's three years old now, but it's one that we still get feedback about, I think partly because it's just not a conversation you tend to hear very often in the mainstream media. Uh, do please find it in our feed if you missed it. Although I should say, uh, if you deliberately avoided that episode, because it's just not something you want to hear, I understand that. Uh, here's a warning you may feel the same about today's interview too it's with a lady who was inspired by that episode to get in touch with us Uh, she's a man fan called Pippa Uh, she is a Brit who lives in Australia and she started her family with her husband Joe a few years back when they welcomed to the world their son Mawson so yeah I was 37 when he was born we'd both always wanted to that was always the dream and having left it slightly later in life, then got back to thinking about right, what do we want as a family and, and moving to that to that next step of, of number two. So how old was Mawson when you started thinking about having another child? So that was at about ten months old. So definitely a lot of a lot of pressure. It had taken a couple of years to get pregnant with Mawson. And for how long did you try to get pregnant then the second time round? Probably six months initially and then had some intervention with ovulation tracking and that sort of thing. Because people get really into it, don't they? Did you have the apps where you sort of like now, you know, doing all the timings and everything? Yeah, pretty much. Unfortunately, take take all the romance out. Yeah. But yeah, and especially having a one and a half year old, you've got to make every every time count. It was a long six months. And especially as, you know, with my age and you get to see this bloody chart every time you go and see the specialist, they show you the chart with the curve of when you're 36, your eggs are deteriorating. And I, I was kind of lucky, I guess, in that I had a few friends that were going through the same thing at the same time. So I had some support outside of my relationship where we could just kind of rant together and just have a bit of a laugh about it as well and just try and keep it a bit lighter, but also understand exactly how tough it was and how hard it is. And worth saying, this was during lockdown too, wasn't it? Yes. You are working from home. I presume your husband was as well. So you're seeing each other constantly. You're in the same roof as your child and each other. And your goal is to conceive. It's an extra pressure then, isn't it? There's no outlet that you'd get normally. Yeah, poor timing, I guess. (laughs) I think COVID is poor timing for everybody. But yeah, it's just that extra pressure. You do the ovulation tracking and I'd got to the stage where my period hadn't come so I went back for the pregnancy blood test but you know I'd had a few scares as you'd used to call them when you were 15 16 (laughs) yeah and so you get to the stage where you're so cynical you're like no nothing's nothing's going on I'm just going to go and do it but already looking to the next cycle and ready to start the IVF going through um, making sure everything's like all the forms are done and everything's ready to go because there's just no way that it's going to happen naturally. So it was a huge shock. Where were you when you received the email? 
at home, we were in lockdown. So <laughs> I think I was, and yeah, my husband must have been at work because I remember ringing him and saying, what are you doing on the 21st of April? And he was like, why? I said, oh, because we're going to be having a baby. <laughs> so it was just really surreal. It must have been a really joyful moment after trying for so long. Yeah, I think I cried. I think I was, yeah, just broke down. And then the doctor, the IVF doctor rang me and she was super excited. She was just like, oh, I'm so happy. I rang my hum actually and said, because she knew that we were trying and she knew that, um, you know, we were looking at IVF and that sort of thing. And she's always been really supportive. And for some reason, like you always decide, I'm not just going to straight tell someone, I'm going to have some way of telling them. So I was on video call to her and got out a bottle of the, the non-alcoholic wine that she'd left behind from her last visit. And I just said, oh, we're going to be cracking this open tonight. And like held it really close so that she could see what it was. And she was like, oh. So, <laughs> she knew straight away yeah, what that meant. And, and the wine was disgusting. She was like, I'm not sure if it was nice or not. There was a couple we tried and one was nice and one wasn't. And this was awful. Um, but yeah, it was just a way of a way of breaking the ice, I guess. You get a dating scan at six or seven weeks. Mm -hmm. So a dating scan just to see how large is the fetus and, and at what stage might you accurately be delivering. That's the first one. Yeah, so that's the one. I mean, to confirm that there is a live fetus in there and mm. that your dates are right. So that was the first one, yeah, kind of just to check for a heartbeat, really, is the main thing. And do you remember that? Um, I mean, do you remember that feeling, hearing the heartbeat? Yeah, yeah, it just sounds like a galloping horse. And that's kind of the confirmation that there is something in there. Like once you've heard the heartbeat, the stats is, you know, goes up loads that the baby's going to survive or that it's, you know, statistically more likely that you're not going to miscarry if you do hear the heartbeat at that stage. When I was pregnant with Morrison, we had the um, NT, which is neutral translucency, which is the back of the neck that they test um, specifically for Downs. They combine that with bloods um, and your other risk factors, which typically is age. Um, so we had that with Morrison at about 12 weeks, I think. Mm -hmm. They combine it with your 12-week scan. So I went to the doctor and, you know, sat down. She opened the letter and said, oh, um, you've got a 1 in 21 chance of the baby having Down syndrome. So this is with your first son with Mawson, a 1 in 21 chance. Yeah. Had you... Yeah had any conversation between you and Joe about what you might do in that circumstance? Yes. High level, yes, we had, but not actually thinking about if it did genuinely happen, like, how do we deal with this? And I just remember the doctor saying, um, oh, that means that 20 women would have a baby without Downs. And I was just like, yeah, but one of them would. So then the next thing we had to do was a diagnostic test. Um, or that we chose to do, sorry, so that we would find out for sure, which is the needle in the stomach straight into the baby, get some fluid out, then they can test the fluid directly. There's a risk of miscarriage with that. It's a 1% chance, but we decided we needed to know to make a decision as to what we could do. I remember we went down to the Snowy Mountains for mountain bike holiday with my brother-in-law and I just, yeah, just constantly felt conflicted as to I can't, I know that there's a baby in there, but I don't feel like I can connect with it in case we're not going to continue with the pregnancy. And I don't want to tell him that I'm pregnant because I don't know if we're going to be, you know, if this is going to continue. So it was a long two weeks of just being in, in limbo and trying not to think about it, but couldn't think about anything else. And it was just a horrible, horrible wait, just not knowing. And then it came back that he didn't, that you were the one of the 20 women who would go on to have a child without Down syndrome. So then it makes sense why in this second pregnancy, having had that experience, you're keen to get this extra test at 10 weeks. So you went to get the NIPT test, did you, the second time round, which is more thorough? Yes. I remember exactly when I found out 
It was a Tuesday evening and I finished work early. This is back when I was in the office. I used to go in early and then um, come back early and pick Mawson up um, from daycare. So I did that, picked him up from daycare, I was sat, he was having his dinner. We were on video call to mum and then I had a, a call come through. So I said, oh, hang on, let me just get this because I don't know who it is. So I picked up the phone, Mawson's in his high chair having his dinner. Joe wasn't back from work yet and it was the doctor. And this was six o'clock in the evening. So I was just like, okay. And he was really quiet and just, you know, I'm really sorry to call you now and just said that you've got a high probability of Down syndrome. And by high probability, this is 99.7% chance that the baby is Down syndrome. Well, those are very different odds, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I, I started crying and then managed to, you know, say oh, thank you to the doctor. And he was telling me, you know, what he was going to do. He was going to send an email or some, some information. And then Joe came back and was just looking at me no idea what was wrong because you know I'd spoken to him earlier the day and everything was fine and then he came back and I was kind of silent crying on the phone and just obviously really distraught and I was trying to say to him the baby's got downs what were you thinking that's it the, the we're not gonna continue with the pregnancy and how the hell are we gonna get through this was that an absolutely certain decision yes and I did ask myself the question again and the answer was the same even though I wish it wasn't I wish that I was the kind of person that could say it doesn't matter to us we wanted this baby so much and we've tried so, you know so hard to 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 have this baby it doesn't matter but we couldn't do it. And I knew that. And I knew deep down, even when I said to Joe, can we, you know, can we do this? I knew that I couldn't. And that's, yeah, something I'll never be able to reconcile fully with. What were you basing that assessment on that you couldn't? That Down syndrome is more than just learning difficulties. It's physical as well. And I hadn't really appreciated that, you know, three years before. But having done some more research, you know, the, the heart issues, the um, lung issues, all the other physical issues as well, let alone. We don't have any support over here in Australia. You know, parents are all at home. Joe's brother's over here, but, you know, they've got a family of their own and, and wouldn't be in a position to help us. Financially, we're not flush we don't have you know spare money kind of hanging around and the thought of Mawson as well the thought of his life being adversely impacted um I tried to counterbalance that with you know well he'd be super understanding and you know it would, might actually be a good thing for him to learn you know from very close quarters that people are different and how to live with this but in reality you know, the life that we'd started with him where we were off going out bike riding, going off on adventures, we wouldn't be able to continue that if we had a baby with Downs. Because also you can't tell the severity. There's no way to tell the severity until they arrive and, and you know, they get older. The difficulty with Down syndrome in particular, it strikes me, is that if you ask someone with Down syndrome or the parent of someone with Down syndrome, clearly the majority of people with Down syndrome lead happy and fulfilling lives and as a presence are actually quite uplifting. The children are gorgeous, aren't they? They're just so smiley and happy. And, and so then it but, sort of naturally leads one to think, is the decision that I'm making a selfish one? Is it a decision about me, ooh. not about the child? The child would be happy in likelihood I'm guessing that I wouldn't. And then so it's oh, a termination because of disability, but really because of your own happiness, isn't it? Yeah. And I never felt as horrible a person as when I realised that I wasn't the kind of person that could do that, that could go ahead and not care. It just made me think, well, you say that you want this baby, but this is, you know, being put in your way. And, and now you're saying that you can't, you can't go through with it because 
the baby's not perfect. And that's what I was saying to myself. It's like, how can you say that you've tried so hard to get pregnant and to, you know, to complete your family? And yet you're so easily kind of giving that away. But I, I couldn't get past it. I couldn't see our lives with a baby with Down syndrome. I just, I just couldn't see it. People who are carers, you know, are amazing people. I couldn't do the job that they do. Some people are just wired differently, but I don't think that anything like that would come naturally to Joe or I. Did you feel like you could say at the time, even to the medical professionals around you, this is how I feel and this is what I want? Yes, to the medical professionals. I picked the people that I spoke to of friends. But I do remember at one stage as well, a bit further down the line, mum said, um, oh, do you want me to tell this person? Because they're, they're, they're quite Christian, so I don't know how they would take it. So maybe I could just tell them and she was going to say something else. And that really upset me. I said, well, no. I said, I've made this decision. I need to stand by it. I'm not going to make something else up or give them an out for not, you know, saying that they, they disagree with me. Everyone has the right to disagree. I've made this decision, but I'm not going to hide it. So although initially I did kind of decide who I was talking to because I thought that they would agree with me or my decision and wouldn't stand against me, I didn't want to lie about it or, or kind of hide the decision that I'd made. Did you find out any more information about your baby? We hadn't and we weren't going to, but when I had the NIPT results sent through to me, we found out that she was a girl. Just knowing that made it worse for some reason, made it more upsetting. I guess because I knew that it makes it more human. It makes, yeah. it makes it seem more real as well. In the lead up to the termination, we went for the CVS and the first time we went, they couldn't do it because the baby was in the wrong position or my, my bowel was in the way or something, so they couldn't do it. And this is to confirm absolutely Down syndrome like last time, confirming that it wasn't. Yeah. So I wasn't, I wasn't interested in that. I was like, look, it's 99.7%. They've got the chromosomes. It can't be wrong. Like there's, there's no, you know, yes, they need to be 100%, but can't we just get on with this? And my husband was like, no, we can't. We need to know for sure. We can't have this in the back of our minds. We had to wait three days for them to get the results. That came back as positive or confirmed. So actually when we were there, we filled in all the paperwork and, and got it booked in because I just wanted to get it done. I you know, didn't want to be pregnant anymore. So we dropped Morrison at daycare and went into the hospital. I couldn't eat anything, which was terrible because I was pregnant and feeling nauseous anyway. And another thing, we'd had four bikes stolen at the end of July and we were going through the insurance claim. And I just remember sitting in this room with Joe. I was sitting on the bed. He was just sat next to me and the insurance company rang. And I just remember having such a go at this woman just because they were asking stupid questions. And I was just like, you are hitting me. How do you discipline your thought process? Because it's really difficult. Not only is it difficult for me to imagine myself in this position, of course, I'd be the father. It wouldn't be my body anyway, even if I was. But basically, you've got two tracks of thought, haven't you? And you have to suppress you have to suppress the one that says, I am sanctioning the killing of my child. And you have to encourage the one that says, I am making a positive decision for my family. But in doing that, you know you're suppressing the other thought, don't you? You can't get yeah. away from it. I, I mean, I wasn't sleeping at the, you know, for those three weeks or however long it was since we found out. I wasn't sleeping. I just felt horrible the whole time, you know, from the morning sickness and the stress and just feeling horrible. And yeah, you just feel numb, like pre-numb already, I guess. And just guilty thoughts, thoughts of, you're just a horrible person. How can you be doing this? You know, because the, the procedure at that stage, I was 13 weeks pregnant. So it's not a case of a tablet. And I remember one thing that the doctor said to me when she was explaining the procedure. She said, I oh, would give you general anaesthetic and the baby goes to sleep. And I was just like, oh God, that is just horrible. That's, 
how can it be a like it's a proper baby and it's going to sleep and mm. it goes to sleep and that's it and the next thing it's ripped out and I guess torturing myself with these things going between torturing myself to there's no other option like this is what we have to do to get past this to move on and um and and to get what we want which is which is our family and then there was the guilt of Mawson I was just I wasn't being a proper parent at the time you weren't alone though I mean you did have Joe what was he saying to you yeah initially he was saying oh it might not be right and I I got really I remember getting really angry with him and I was like there's no point having hope I can't cope with having hope there's no there's no reason to have hope it's it's a foregone conclusion that was tough for him but I just couldn't I couldn't cope with anyone being oh everything will be all right but well no it won't and that's it's not going to be all right you know this is the situation I'm in it's not nothing's going to is it going to be the same again? Everything's changed. I want to talk about things. Like I, I find therapy and talking about things and, and he doesn't necessarily. We did talk and we did cry and we did talk to friends and, and family as well. But another thing that was horrible was I told a few people and I don't necessarily believe in not telling people that you're pregnant before 12 weeks. Because actually one of the worst things that we had to do or that I had to do was to say to people, I've got to tell you something. Don't get excited at the first sentence because it's not happy. So I had to tell people, I'm pregnant, but. And it was, it's just horrible. Like you have to tell people, I'm going to tell you something that should be happy and it's not happy. And that's why I think, and I have encouraged people tell people that they're pregnant before 12 weeks because if something goes wrong you need that support around you you need that help well except then I guess there's the risk isn't there that you've told people you don't see very frequently and they come back six months later and say how are you feeling or you don't know yeah. nine months pregnant I mean that's the and I think you tell people that you're close with did you have to tell your employer is that the conversation you had to have with them I did yeah I had to yeah that was a kind of I think I said told them an email actually and I said, I'm currently this pregnant, but <laughs> this is happening. And they, they were great. They, you know, I took the, I took two weeks off, I think, starting from just before the termination to after. And then we were, we were at home anyway. So it wasn't like I had to go into the office and, and face people because of the lockdown, hmm. which was actually a blessing, probably and a curse. Were you offered support from professionals? Yeah, to an extent, there was some counselling offered. Um, more kind of before the actual termination, we were given a whole list of, you know, charities that help people, but charities are for people who've lost a child uh, through miscarriage or through stillbirth. And one of my friends, unfortunately, um, her baby died in childbirth. Mm. And I couldn't get my head around the fact that I could contact the same charity that she could. But that's not to say that you don't deserve support. Do you think there's a gap there then? Yeah. I didn't think I should be able to contact the same people that people who'd had something totally out of their control happen. And I, I was on the verge so many times of calling these numbers. And I just thought, no, why should you do that? You, you haven't. Like, these, are, these are charities for people who suffered miscarriage or who suffered stillbirth or you know, because they talk about memory boxes and all these things. And I was like, you don't deserve that because this hasn't, this isn't something that's been like ripped away from you in the way that it has for these other people. But is there a similarity? I mean, it, it, did you, was the feeling that you were feeling that you had lost a child? I don't know. We didn't do a funeral. We didn't do a memory box. We didn't name the baby. We didn't do anything like that, which I know some people do in my situation, or if they've had a miscarriage even earlier, you know, sort of really early. And people deal with things in different ways, but I just didn't think that my situation was the same as somebody who needed to do that. And I, I think that is because we had made a decision and we could have, we could have continued with the pregnancy. I mean, you wanted to come on the show because you wanted to talk to other parents who might be in your position. Did you feel like that's what you needed? You needed to hear from someone else who'd had this experience? Yeah, because 
miscarriage isn't the same. Stillbirth isn't the same. It felt like I was comparing myself to these people, which I didn't feel like I had the right to do. And, and there's a term rainbow baby. If you have a baby after losing a baby, mm. I, I don't feel that I can use that term because I haven't suffered loss in the same way that other people have. I guess the thing is the science allows you to make what feels like a very rational decision and mm. make it much earlier than anyone could have ever made it previously. But our emotions and our development as parents hasn't quite caught up with where the medicine is. No, that's right. And I think that there's, there's a huge amount of guilt, a huge amount of guilt about the decision that I didn't feel I had an option but to make. And I think that comes out in that the fact that I don't think that I deserve the, the same support as other people or don't deserve to use the same terms or don't deserve the same recognition, I guess. And yet, if you took the Down syndrome out of it and if you took the fact out of it that you and your partner really desperately wanted this pregnancy, if you just made this a story about someone who was 10, 11, 12 weeks pregnant and then had an abortion because they wanted one, which is perfectly legal as well, isn't it, in that time frame? They wanted one because it was inconvenient for them to have this baby and they decided it was inconvenient. You don't need to give any reason greater than that in Britain or in Australia. Would you really be saying that person doesn't deserve support just because they chose it? It's still a difficult process. They've still lost a child. They still might be feeling some of the same things you are. And I think from the outside, if I was talking to somebody else, I'd want them to have the support. But if it was me, I wouldn't think that I deserved that support. So I think it, it's, yeah, it's almost like an inverse protection mechanism in that I, I couldn't have made another decision, but I think because I wish that I could be the person that could have made that decision, I'm still beating myself up about it. And because it's legal, because it is possible, uh, inevitably when you start looking online for discussions around this subject, most of the stuff you encounter is approaching things from the other direction. It's people who want the law to change. They want it to be less possible to have abortions for Down syndrome. Um, there was a lady who's taken the UK government to the High Court over abortion law, a lady with Down syndrome, who feels that the current time frame, because you can terminate the pregnancy even after 24 weeks in Britain for Down yeah. syndrome, yeah. should be changed. I don't think I engage with it because it's too painful, but I agree that, that, that everything should be done sooner rather than later because, yes, there's more going on. There's more of a, a person, of a human, the, the, the later you get into the pregnancy. And there's, there's more connection that you as a mother have to that baby. And there's, the, you know, there's, there's more harm done to everybody, I think. You know, 10 weeks is the earliest that you can get this test done. But, you know, there's still a good couple of weeks after that um, that it takes to actually take any action. And, and speaking to friends who've had friends in the UK with um, a similar situation to me, they've had to wait a long time to have a termination. And they've, you know, they've been a lot further on and... I, I just can't imagine having to wait that long to get to that stage. So I kind of feel that for everybody involved, I feel there should still be a choice. I'm pro-choice, but specifically for abnormalities, I feel that the earlier that they're diagnosed and the earlier they're dealt with, the better for everybody involved. I'm sure there are people listening to this now from Down Syndrome charities who have found this episode because of the keywords in the description of this episode. Mm. And they are shouting at their phones now saying, well, we could have helped you. If we had a louder voice, we absolutely could tell you how to care for a Down syndrome child. We absolutely could support you. There are ways to get through it. But do you think that could have made a difference? No, I don't think so. Because there was some information from one Down syndrome charity, I think. The decision was an instinctive one from both of us. I think if if there had been a, a question mark as to whether we could cope and what we could do to cope, then yes, the fact that there was support out there would have made a difference. Some people listening to this would say it's only because it's offered to you to find out. 
that you're able to really ask that question. And if you mm. really did want this baby and you had tried so hard for it and you weren't able to find out and the baby came along and the baby had Down syndrome, actually, despite what you think about yourself, you would be able to rise to that challenge. That's mm. how all parents of disabled people do have to deal with it. Yeah, and that makes me feel terrible in that I've been given this choice and I've made that decision because I think everybody or the majority of people would like to think that they are, and again, this is probably the wording I'm about to use, is probably me beating myself up, but that they're good enough, to they're a good enough person to put themselves to one side and to put the child first. And like you say, the fact that we had really tried for this baby and really wanted it it just I and I kept saying that to Joe I was like how can I say that I really want this baby and yet I'm letting it be ripped out of me and using language like that and using like graphic kind of descriptive terms to make myself feel worse about it and I, I kind of knew I was doing it at the time and I said it to a friend as well I said how can I have you know ripped my baby from and, and used that language but and because I was beating myself up because I wasn't the person that I would like to think to, to have thought that I was. Are you going to try for a baby again? Well, <laughs> I'm due to give birth in three weeks. Oh, wow. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, I mean, in that context, difficult to ask these questions, but I presume then you had the scan again and it came out differently. Yes. I think the one good thing about having been through what we did with Mawson and with um, the baby before this one was that I knew all the questions to ask. So we were booked in to have the Harmony test, the NIPT test at exactly the right number of weeks. I mean, we got it fast tracked because they knew the, the previous history. I knew the questions to ask the sonographer. Every scan was just so anxious. I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't sleep for a week before, um, just expecting everything, you know, something to go wrong. And it wasn't until 20 weeks that we had the morphology scan and knew that, you know, however much, whatever the stat is, the high percentage that everything's okay. You know, it's, and it's a long time to go from knowing that you're pregnant at four weeks to, to 20 weeks. Do you know if it's a boy or a girl? Yes, we do. It's a girl. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> is there going to be a part of you when you hopefully safely and happily give birth to this girl that's thinking about the other girl? Yeah, definitely. But knowing that this is a girl, I kind of feel that we've been given a second chance and that maybe she's forgiven us and, and it's all going to be okay. Our thanks and best wishes to Pippa. There is a page about termination for fetal anomalies on the NHS website, uh, which includes details of a charity helpline and has information about the choice and the process in the UK. I've posted a link to that on our website. And if, like Pippa, you've had an experience that you would like to share, something that you think is underreported elsewhere, something people don't normally give airtime to, uh, we would love to hear from you. Just fill in the feedback form on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Uh, now, if you need to pause the show now, go ahead, go and make yourself a cup of tea. There is something completely different, as usual, after this. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Time for what we call in the trade a handbrake turn now. It is the foxhole. Your sex questions answered with Alex Fox. Hello, Alex. 
Hey, Ollie. What is going on in the world of Fox? I'm going to preface this with a disclaimer because this is not something I endorse. It's just come onto my raunch radar. But I have become aware of something called the Andro Switch Ring. Um, it's a type of what's called MTC or male thermal contraception. Um, oh, okay. I thought you were going to say some sort of high tech sex tech thing, you know, because Andro sounds like robotics. No, it's actually very low tech. It essentially pokes your bollocks up into your body, very lightly boiling them or poaching them uh, to give a contraceptive effect. Um, It's produced, as far as I can tell so far, by a French company. And it's a ring that sort of fits around the penis and under the balls, lifting them up. It lifts your bollocks right inside your body so they can't settle into the scrotum uh, and then raises their temperature only by two degrees. But the company who make it claim that if it's worn for at least 15 hours a day over a period of months, then it will eventually lower sperm production enough to cause temporary reversible infertility without any form of surgery and without any form of hormones. It sounds riskily uncomfortable, though. I mean, they already come with a pouch. (laughs) That's where they are supposed to be kept. Well, the manufacturers say it's got bumps on it to create a breathable effect. So it's not like you're not chafing and sweating at the same time as your bollocks are being elevated. And they reckon that if you work up from wearing it just for two hours a day to the full 15 hours over a period of about a week, then it's not actually that uncomfortable to to get used to. Uh, You can pee as normal. You can get hard-ons as normal. It's also super cheap. I'm not sure that's what I want to hear. (laughs) The kind of device that you need to go to a GP to get fitted. Or is this something you'd be able to buy over the counter? You can buy it over the counter or indeed over the internet for the princely sum of 37 euros okay time for your questions of sex brought to you by the handy.com which upgrades the humble tug to something more of a masturbation revelation (laughs) and more about them and our special deal later this month's question is from a lady who's chosen to remain anonymous who says i recently started sleeping with my boyfriend we were both virgins before so it's been a learning experience for both of us The thing we've been struggling with most, though, is what to call my vagina when we're in bed. Vagina sounds too clinical, but most of the obvious alternatives either make me feel like I'm in a porn film, or alternatively are so silly-sounding that they just make me want to laugh rather than getting turned on. It's easy with a guy, we just naturally referred to it as his willy without thinking about it. I'm not sure I think that's quite a silly word. Uh, But there doesn't seem to be a female alternative. Are there any equivalent words we can use to refer to my vagina? This is very much my specialist subject. Um, There's two aspects of the question I'd like to to pick out before we really delve into the meat of the matter. Mm -hmm. Firstly totally agree with you ollie because willy the word willy would turn me off like a flipping (laughs) strip light in a power cut that is a no for me i'm a cock girl all the way um so yeah i have a bone to pick literally with that um but that just really illustrates the fact that um vocabulary is it's it's all about context and personal taste i think there is no one word or one term that works for everybody um the second thing i'd like to just zoom in on quickly is the idea that because they were virgins before they started sleeping together this couple Mm. that that makes this matter uniquely difficult for them it doesn't a lot of people struggle with convincing dirty talk and in fact when you get a new partner often they will have different preferences to anyone who has come and gone before them and actually if you're in a settled relationship before you then move on back into the dating scene that particular bridge, I imagine, is quite... Because you've probably gone from calling it your cock to your willy, haven't you? In a settled relationship. And then you're back into the mode where, oh, should I be sexifying my genitals again? Sexifying your genitals. Are you proposing there that over time, uh, as people become more embedded in a relationship and more relaxed, that their terminology becomes uh, maybe a little bit more infantile or like they, they stop speaking about their bodies in more mainstream sexy ways? I'm just saying that as people are more comfortable in a relationship, I imagine very often if you've just had a conversation with the person that you're about to have sex with about where the washing powder is, you're probably less likely to say wet pussy. That's my guess. Well, I don't know. You're in proximity to a washing machine. It's, you know, it's quite a traditional scenario. Perch your missus on on top of the white goods and give her a good seeing too. It's where we keep the cat litter, so. (laughs) Anyway, carry on. I find a lot of people don't really know enough about anatomy in the first place 
to accurately describe what sexy things they want to do. And also Um, vagina is a kind of catch-all term, isn't it? To erotic bits, pee bits, clit, flaps. It's just the whole general area, right? Whereas a lot of sexy words might be felt to mean something more specific. Well, vulva. Well, that isn't a sexy word, is it? Yeah. A good way of remembering the difference between vagina and vulva, because a lot of people get them confused, is vagina actually has the word in in it. Vagina, if you will. So I'm wrong. You can't use vagina in a catch-all term for the general downstairs area of a lady. Vagina is the the tunnel, the bit where tampons and penises go in and babies (laughs) come out, whereas vulva, vulva, breathe out, is everything on the outside, including the clit and the flaps and... and, and, the right. general well, the- fanny area but a lot of people <laughs> you are that's what you should call it <laughs> perfect the gfa if you have just a cursory look on instagram feminist accounts there are so many that are women sharing sex they've received where guys just unfortunately are trying to be sexy but don't have basic knowledge of anatomy so they're Mm. saying things like uh, I want to stick my cock in your clit the fact that a lot of us are using phones uh, as the conduit for our sexy talk means that there is a whole load of additional problems now it's not just the language we're trying to use in the first place it's how autocorrect interprets it hence why I got messages from people saying that they'd received tinder dms uh, saying that someone wanted to fill them with their sick rather than their dick which again you know again it's a possible not some. advisable okay <laughs> yeah. so what does all this lead us to then alex what can we suggest to this lady well i can't give them a universally sexy phrase because it just doesn't exist everybody likes different things i think tell me what you want me to do is a really good phrase to start an erotic conversation yes. as well because you're you're then handing over uh, the steering wheel, if you will, to somebody else. You're handing it over to your partner. They can tell you what kind of terminology they like. But when the answer to that question, though, still presumably has to involve an object, doesn't it? That's the issue. So, you know, tell me what you'd like to do. At some point, he's going to say, when do you want me to touch your vagina? That's the issue. What's the word that he should say instead? Or what's the word she should say? You know, you're doing this too hard in my what? What's the thing? (laughs) Well, again, if you could avoid saying the what by saying, can we move more softly? Or Mm. I'd love it if you touched me more slowly. You don't have to name the object, if you will, or the orifice. But if you want to expand... Don't use the word orifice. If you want to expand your vaginal vocabulary, then reading or listening to some erotica is a really good place to start. I recommend Nancy Friday, very, very famous author who um, collated and collected all sorts of other people's fantasies. I, I think the distance there, the fact that you're reading what turns somebody else on, might perhaps make it less embarrassing if the terminology they're using isn't your cup of tea. Like what? I mean, are there any that... Uh tickle your fancy that isn't a euphemism (laughs) I've definitely been in lots of scenarios myself where what my partner is saying isn't tickling my fancy and I've had to navigate conversations about uh, agreeing terminology that works for both of us Um, I I dated someone for a long time who liked to use the word cunt Mm. and I'm not offended by that um, but I find it quite funny in some contexts and just a bit too aggressive in yeah. others. Um, he was dead set on this. This was really the only term that, that really turned him on. And we, we actually reached a bit of an impasse there. It was it was it was tricky to find something that that, that worked for both of us because my preferred terms he found. Um, I was about to say a little bit wet. You'd hope so, <laughs> really. Um, a friend of mine was talking to me recently about how in certain scenarios she loves it when her partner says I want to fill your holes like if they're role playing uh, and she's being quite submissive or they're Mm. doing something you know they're in a really filthy grotty grimy mood where the the potential kind of objectification of that that term and the the roughness of it really turns her on I mean I usually find your suggestions of having a conversation with your partner about whatever difficult issue is facing you in the bedroom mortifying in principle and think well actually I'm never going to get you just can't sit down but I do think an an evening with a couple of glasses of wine sat around the kitchen table writing up a list of your favorite words for your genitals would actually be a laugh 
I think it could be very funny. It could also quite easily segue into foreplay. If yeah. you find that the two of you are getting turned on, then in that, in that case, you've clearly hit on something that works. I hope that helps. Let us know what you settle upon. Um, if you have a question of sex for Alex Fox, head over to our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and fill out the feedback form. And our thanks to our sponsors, thehandy.com. Now, Handy have just recently released the newest firmware update. Never has anything been more appropriately named than firmware. <laughs> so it now has some extra features such as, check this out, Ollie, this is crazy. You are able now to define both the top and bottom stroke points. So this is really super customizable. You can program this thing so that it begins and finishes its stroke exactly where you want it to on your penis. But what really appeals to me about this is that this update is freely available to all users. So you don't have to purchase a brand new device to get this and future upgrades. And I just think their attitude as a company in this regard is really decent for customers. And it sets them apart from a lot of other brands who mm. frankly expect you to pay more cash for improved versions or additional yeah. developments. Yeah, exactly. Rather than allowing you to update the tech you've already invested in without paying extra. So once you've got your hands on a handy, you know it's not going to become obsolete in seconds. And it's a robust bit of kit, isn't it? I mean, the sleeve that goes around your penis, I'm using the word penis. <laughs> I'm happy with that word. In this um, context, in this con yes. I'm, say willy. The I'm happy with penis. <laughs> <laughs> Cock felt too much. Uh, the sleeve <laughs> that goes around your penis is washable, isn't it? So that's that bit you can clean, but the rest of the equipment, there's there's no reason that can't keep you going all the way to the Antiques Roadshow. And because you can sync it with things, you could actually wank in time to the Antiques Roadshow theme tune if that personally tickled your pickle. And you can try it out for yourself at thehandy.com. If you use the voucher code FOXHOLE, F-O-X-H-O-L-E, you can get free express shipping. So we'll get DPD to send it direct to your D. And also people should keep an eye on your Instagram if they would like to win a free handy. You can find that at Alex Fox, A-L-I-X-F-O-X. Thanks, Alex. See you next time. It's been glorious, Ollie. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this month's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is Susanna Statham from Surbiton, nicely alliterative, who says, Hello, team. I've been listening religiously since the beginning of the podcast. I was a long-term fan of Answer Me This and can now say, without a doubt, the Modern Man is my favourite podcast. When I took up running in lockdown, your monthly episodes really helped me through, and I even convinced my flatmates to have a listen to CBD infused lube and the mention of Untitled Goose Game were what did it. You never know what's going to cut through, do you? Uh, I love the mixture of topics you discuss. It is such a refreshing listen, and I would love to be considered for the position of Ambassador for Surbiton. Susanna, you've not only been considered, you have been appointed. Congratulations to you and all of Surbiton. And thanks for listening. Our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you with something new on October the 10th. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.